Let us pray. We praise you, O God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who of your grace and mercy has called us to be your people, has made us a new creation in Jesus Christ, and has given us such great and glorious promises concerning all our todays and tomorrows. We thank you that we have been called to victory, and we pray, our Father, that as we face the powers of darkness, we may face them as more than conquerors, and blessed assurance that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that the increase of his government there shall be no end. Grant us by your Spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, for the sake of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So as we consider God's word today, I want us to, to know that we're covering God's sovereignty in baptism. And we're talking about water baptism here. And what I want us to do, like we just finished a series on the fundamentals of worship, understanding what we're doing there. We are doing baptism today. We kind of covered the Lord's Supper a couple weeks ago. But I, I also want you to know that moving forward, we'll, we'll be continuing and working into a, a series on marriage and family and child rearing, as well as we consider what it means to be the servants and the people of God. But all of this happens because we are called by God, and he marks us out, he places his name upon us. So let us consider, uh, just as the lens for today, Two passages, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, and Titus 3, beginning in verse 4. Let us hear God's word. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Amen, he says. And then Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So as we think about God's word, we see two things just quickly in this passage, or these two passages. One, that we are to be baptizing folks. Now praise the Lord, in, in recent times, we've had both the privilege of baptizing uh, covenant infants, covenant children, and even some adults. And we need to continue to work to the preaching of the gospel, reaching out to our neighbors, knowing that baptizing them marks them out under the name of God. So I want you to think about that. You know, we can quick to say a prayer, but we need to understand that salvation 
and God's call is for us to be marked out and called by his name. And then secondly, we see that by the work of Jesus Christ, the Spirit washes us, regenerates us, and renews us by the Spirit. And in fact, he's poured out. This, of course, is why we use that mode of pouring. He's poured out upon us. Now, this is really important. We must believe in God's sovereign work in our lives. And I suspect many of you, if I were to say to you, do you believe in the sovereign work of God in your life, especially unto your salvation? I believe most everyone in this room would say, why, yes, I do. You know, but sometimes when we look at scriptures, we're not sure that we can reconcile scripture that we're reading what we're seeing that it says, and we think to ourselves, I know that the passage can't be what it seems to be saying. I want to encourage us to let God's word inform and teach us. Colossians 2.8 says this, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Since the Renaissance and the resurgence of the dualism offered in Plato and other Greek philosophers, we have objectified rationalism. That is, we have embraced pure reason. Many embrace a way of life that says thought and reason are what counts, and that the things of the physical world are of lesser value and no importance. They say, what is in my head is all that matters. They privatize faith. You know, this is a real danger as we consider the world of artificial intelligence in all kinds of ways. It turns the world and every experience to something that happens inside your head. Something that's created, but not real. Something that looks real, sounds real, but it is not real. As a matter of fact, I think this is a huge danger as, as far as it relates to coming together in worship. If we believe that what matters is between my ears and not actually being with the people of God, this is destructive. This is why so many people today feel like, okay, if I've watched the, the church service or a church service or I listened to a sermon and I heard it and I did it from home, that that's the same thing and is equal of a, of a thing as being in the household of God with God's people in worship. These are dangers. We need to recognize that Christ came in real human form. He really did suffer and died and was resurrected and sits enthroned in heaven in a human body. God uses physical things in his work in our lives. He gathers his people locally for worship in one geographical space. I'm talking about a local body, obviously. Today there's churches all over with people in them. But when we come together, we 
see, hear, feel, and eat real things that he is present in. And he changes us for his glory and our work in this world. We are to see God in the means of grace that he gives us in baptism, in the word, and at the table. We do, in fact, receive these gifts in faith, and our faith brings about action in the real world in all areas of life. Again, the problem with rationalism is that it relegates faith to an internal-only faith. And this is contrary to the way that God works to redeem his people. Now, I've said all that, and you're like, okay, how does this fit in to baptism? Well, what is baptism? Well, first of all, it's an act that it was commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28. We read that this morning. We also see in the scriptures that it's admission to the church. 1 Corinthians 12 and Galatians 3. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Romans 4 and Colossians 2. It's engrafting into Christ. Galatians 3 and Romans 6. It's regeneration, John 3 and Titus 3. It's for the remission of sins, Mark 1, Acts 2, and Acts 22. And it is a giving up to God in Jesus to walk in newness of life. You see this in Romans 6. You know, all of this is possible because God is present at and in baptism. Because he is present in baptism. Baptism itself is a blessing. Now, Christian baptism is done with water. You see this in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10. And there is a direct connection of the Spirit in water to baptism. Ephesians 4, 4 tells us this. There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And here Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, there's one baptism. Peter and Acts Chen. Acts 10 connects the water and the spirit. In Acts 10, 47, he says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. The connection to the spirit and water is not just the New Testament idea. From the very creation in Genesis 1, the spirit hovered over the waters. The spirit is involved in both the old and new creation cleansing. In Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25, it says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, this is God speaking, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
And you know, this passage here in Ezekiel was quoted twice in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, and in Hebrews 8, verse 10. Jesus instructs us that baptism is to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This sign and seal gives us the right to be called Christians. To be baptized in the name of someone means to belong to them. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is just like the blessing of the name, excuse me, of the name of God in number 6 that was for God's covenant people in the Old Testament. And what did we learn last week about that blessing from number 6? We hear that every week. And why do we hear it? We hear it for the commissioning to, to go out and take dominion and be fruitful and multiply God's kingdom over all the earth. And we see that, of course, in Isaiah 11 and Habakkuk chapter 2. Now, the Westminster Confession, chapter 27.1 says this of baptism. It's a visible difference between those who belong unto the church and the rest of the world. All of us here today must clearly understand that baptism locates us in the people of God. There are no solitary Christians in the Bible. God calls those he loves into a community. This seems very radical in our day and age of individualism. The narrative all around us screams and even protests that all of life is about the individual. The triune God is rather not simply an individual God, but he is a God of relationship. He is one and three. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the example of love and community. We talked a little bit about that this past Trinity Sunday. God's work in this world is towards individuals who comprise his covenant people, which is the church. Now we must understand that we serve a God of covenants. The word covenant appears in the Old Testament 284 times and 33 times in the New Testament. And by the way, if you just look at the volume, that's not really of, of how big the Old Testament is and how big the New Testament is. That's a pretty even amount. This is significant that the language of both the Old and New Testaments speaks in covenantal relationship to God's collective people. God's divine covenant happens and is executed in history. He calls his people at particular places, at particular times, and in particular physical ways. God's actions are always made on our behalf. We bring nothing to the covenant but our sin. We are utterly incapable of doing anything but receiving his promises to us. When the sign of the Old Testament covenant was made, it was done with a real knife and real flesh was cut off. And 
this was done in a specific geographical place. And it was done in real time, actual time, and it had happened in history. Part of this, I just want to say, is I'm trying to emphasize the fact that God isn't a distant God way out there. He is our God, and He is present with His people. And this is important, again, as we look at this, that that person being circumcised, he didn't do it to himself. And I know, of course, we think with a child, that's ridiculous. Of course he couldn't. But even if it was a grown proselyte who's changing from being a pagan to being a God-fearer, and he wants to move even closer so that he can go into the temple and he can celebrate Passover, he doesn't do it to himself. It was performed by God's representative, the priest. The change in the covenant status was not simply the act of cutting off, but rather because God was and is present, and he is really acting. Baptism teaches us not by just words, but by pictures and actions. In baptism, we not only hear about our cleansing, but we also see and feel it, and it is depicted dramatically. How many guys have ever seen us baptize a baby, and I take that water, and even though we've heated it up, I put it on the baby's head, and the baby does like this, right? Does the baby feel it? And sometimes by that reaction that the baby has, you get a little chill, right? You could almost imagine that water hitting you. So you see it. That baby feels it. I've had that happen actually baptizing adults sometimes. They get a little, the water just kind of runs down and it hits them and they're like, ooh. Right? It's real water. God is using a real person as his representative. God uses the physical things as he works in our life. So like circumcision, baptism is a sign and a seal. Baptism provides Christians with the seal of being God's covenant people, with all its rights and privileges. Now this is where some people become nervous. But the concern is that we, too, that we often confuse being the covenant people with God, or of God, with election. Being the covenant people still requires faith in God's promises provided for us in Christ Jesus. That is to say, we say, well, I don't understand this baptism thing. You're baptizing babies or doing this because how do they have faith? Um, and I'm not sure how that this enters them into the people of God because we're always worried about, well, is it elect? And I'll just, that, that logic is flawed on so many ways, but just at, at the clearest face value is, I can baptize an adult who's made a confession, and I, as a man, still don't know his heart, and I still don't know if he is called to election. Now, that can run all by itself sideways, but I want to point out that the narrative of Scripture, that covenantal language of Scripture, tells us that we are to bring our children to baptism that they are then entered in to the covenant of God's people. And we definitely, I want us to emphasize, we must have faith. They must have faith. And in that, 
It's faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 4.11 it says this, And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness, of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. So he was circumcised, and he had faith. And in that way, he was brought. First, he was called by God. He was circumcised, brought into the covenant in that circumcision. And he was considered the people of God. In baptism, God's representative, the pastor or elder, pours real water over the child or adult. And they really get wet. And the Spirit transforms the person from outside the covenant into the covenant community of the triune God. And they receive all the benefits and blessings of God's grace to his people. God's covenant has attendant blessings and curses. And we will address the curses shortly, but we need to see that God's covenant is for us and our children. God establishes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. He says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Again, when God takes his covenant and he speaks it again to Isaac, he does so in Genesis 26. And when he speaks it again to Jacob, in Genesis 28, and when God calls the people of Israel out of Egypt, we see that he intends the covenant to include our children. And in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says this, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to who? Our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In Joshua chapter 5, we see that the sign of the covenant, circumcision, being performed on all the males who had been born in the wilderness. Before they could enter the promised land, they needed the outward sign that symbolized the removal of the reproach of Egypt. That is, a cleansing of sins from Egypt, all the stuff they had carried with them. We even see the words of the covenant were read to the people of all ages. In other words, why is this even important? Because these words are being read to, to people of all ages even when it seems like they can't understand. We see this in Joshua 8, 2 Chronicles 20, and in Joel 2. It's interesting, in Joel 2, beginning of verse 15, we see that as God speaks, as His word is spoken, that it is done in the context of repentance. In Joel 2, verse 15, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, like we are doing here today. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Is that some of the people? No, it says this, Assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. By the way, that last line is this to say, as important as you might think your wedding is, nothing is more important than being in church, being with God's people. When God's elders call a holy convocation, 
a sacred assembly, be in church. Be in church. But we see that it is both the elders and the children and the nursing babes. We see in the New Testament baptisms of whole households in Acts 16. We see both Lydia's whole household and the Philippian jailer's household. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we, saw, we see that Paul baptized the household of Stephanus. And of course, all of this is consistent with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, that says that um, we hear each time, we hear that passage, each time that we baptize a baby or a small child, and it says this, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And that word holy there is saints. Some folks are uncertain of this instruction from God's word. The pattern of scripture doesn't fit their personal experience or how they've previously learned. Now, do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Do we believe in God's sovereign call and election to our eternity? And yet somehow we have doubts about God's sovereign call and election in our children. Calvin points out, and he's referenced to Psalm 127, that children are a fruit from God. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are not the fruit of chance, as many in our culture think. Babies are not random, but are the product of God's ordained plan. Our lack of faith should not keep us from standing on God's covenant promises to be our God and the God of our children. We even see in Acts 2, verse 39, Peter says this, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. We say some who've been baptized have rebelled and walked away from the faith. So we just can't know if our children can be baptized. Sometimes the baptized do betray the Lord. They have become covenant breakers. As covenant breakers, when this happens, they receive the curses of the covenant and not the blessings. When they fail, excuse me, when they fall into unrepentant sin, we need to grab them by their baptism and point them back to Christ. Sometimes the parents or the child fall into the sin of presumption. I want to pause for a second. You know, when it comes to the covenant promises, you know what we do? We love them. Like, oh, this is so great. This is so good. I love all the promises. They make me feel warm inside. They give me hope for my kids and everything else. Right? We're glad for them. Unfortunately, too often, we don't think about when we become, or our children, if they fall into it, become covenant breakers, what the curses are. Teach your children both God's blessings and potential curses that fall to those 
who are covenant breakers. This happens because of the sin of presumption. Folks, when this happens, they presume that the baptism is simply the ticket to heaven and that now the child that is baptized, they're automatically, without question, going to heaven. That is not what the scriptures teach. These parents or young people who were baptized have ignored the clear teaching of Scripture and commit the sin of presumption upon God in His baptism. We need to hear the warning from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 of how much worse punishment do you suppose will He be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified to be a common thing? and insulted the spirit of grace. Baptism does not secure final glorification. Rather, it marks someone's initiation to the church with all its attendant privileges and responsibilities. But in this, we need to remember what God's Word teaches us. In Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, we clearly see or hear God's instruction concerning our parental obligations to instruct our children. By the way, you don't have any current children. Every time we baptize a child, you as the body of Christ here, you get a charge too. You're responsible in this as well. But it says this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. By the way, children, look up this way. Young people, look at this way. You ever get to that place where you feel like, how in the world can my mom and dad be talking about the Bible as it relates to what I'm doing right now? It seems like at every turn, they can take what's happening and point to the Bible on it. You should be thankful. Why? Because they're following God's direction here right out of Deuteronomy. Be thankful and listen and hear these words. We are called, each and every one of us, to love God with all our hearts, all our souls, and with all our strength. And we are to have God's word in our hearts for ourselves and to teach our children and disciples that God provides for us. In every part of life, the application of God's word in their life in all things. This is so that our children and those we are discipling into faith believe God's covenant promises to us through the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that they understand the consequences of breaking covenant with God. We should continually point believers back to their baptism as a way of assuring them that Christ is their Savior. They are, in fact, marked out from the world into the church and carry the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
This actually brings immense clarity to the third word, that is the third commandment. Here, Deuteronomy 5.11, you shall take, that is carry, the name of Yahweh, or excuse me, you shall not take or carry the name of Yahweh your God in a vain or empty way. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who carries his name in vain with emptiness and no value. Remember that, that admonition, that warning in Hebrews 10 about trampling on Christ's blood as if it meant nothing? And it speaks of the covenant right in that passage. When we do not carry God's name, excuse me, when we do carry God's name in an empty and valueless way, we trample the Son of God underfoot and count the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified as a common thing that is worthless and empty. And we insult the Spirit of grace, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. We must not presume on God, but in faith believe God by obedience to his commandments. Our only assurance is trusting God and his promised salvation through Christ Jesus. Paul in Romans, especially in chapter 8, assuringly, assuringly calls his readers elect. Verse 31. And then goes on to warn them about being cut off a few chapters later in chapter 11. But Paul is viewing election through the lens of the covenant so that he can give in very direct language both promises and threats. Biblically, there's no problem addressing the entire covenant community as elect, regenerate, or sanctified, even though, sadly, some of these covenant members will apostatize. Understanding that the Bible speaks this way, we, too, can baptize people, including our children, and speak of them as saints. Whether a new baby, an adult Christian, they all must be taught and brought up in faith in Jesus and in his word. You know, baptism speaks about the church as much as it does about the baptized. When we realize that we're baptized into the name of the triune God, we are baptized into Christ Jesus and therefore into the body, the church. It focuses on the nature of the community that one enters in baptism. The church is a new thing God has done, a new creation, a new society brought together in Christ. As in the old covenant, then the endowment with the spirit at baptism does not guarantee his permanent presence. We can grieve the Spirit. The Spirit can depart from us. It is possible to commit blasphemy against the Spirit and remain unforgiven. It is only as we walk humbly, penitently, confessing and renouncing our sins that the Spirit will remain with us. We need not to fear, but to remember our baptism. To look away from ourselves to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We are assured, not by figuring out, because this is where it happens to us sometimes, and we fall in this place, am I regenerate? We don't need to worry about that. 
But by keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, the one who persevered to the end, we too can be assured. Hebrews 12, beginning verse 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that is the covenant people of God who remain faithful to him, who lived repentant, penitent lives, we're surrounded by those, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our assurance is in Christ Jesus. All of you who've been baptized have been marked out to be God's covenant people. Let us rejoice, keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, and be assured in Him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that your word is truth, and that your word is joy and peace to our hearts. We thank you that you are a God to us and our children and to all who are far off. Lord, we thank you for the sacrament of baptism into your triune name. Please grant us grace to respond in faith to your covenant promises and our baptisms. Please keep us from the sin of presumption and grant us the strength to carry your name in a manner that causes the world to glorify you and be drawn to you. If we fail, may we confess our sins and remember that your word promises us victory in Jesus Christ. Make us ever mindful how rich we are in Christ our Lord. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world forever and ever. Amen.